If you haven't already, would you open in your Bibles to that text that he just read, Matthew chapter 16, and find verses 13 to 19. And to give you a sense of what has happened prior to this bit of Matthew's story that Jonathan just read for us, Jesus and the disciples have spent a fair amount of time in ministry together at this point. They've traveled over a good deal of ground, interacted with those outside the kingdom of God, which are mainly non-Jewish folk, as well as spending a great deal of time with the people of God, which would be the Jewish folk. Jesus and the disciples have interacted with almost every strata of Jewish society and culture, and news of the ministry of this prophet and his band of merry men and women has traveled with him and farther and wider than he and his disciples. In addition to that context in Matthew, I think we need some historical context as well. I'd like to give it to you from N.T. Wright. Quote, Many Jews of Jesus' day believed, and many Jews today still believe this, that God would send an anointed king, a Messiah, who would be the spearhead of the movement that would free Israel from oppression and bring justice and peace to the world at last. And God had made wonderful promises about that and his future family. What would the Messiah be like? How would people tell that he had arrived? Nobody knew exactly, but there were many theories. Many saw him as a warrior king who would defeat the pagan hordes and establish Israel's freedom. Many saw him as one who would purge the temple and establish true worship. Everybody who believed in such a coming king knew that he would fulfill Israel's scriptures and bring God's kingdom into reality at last on earth as it was in heaven. But nobody had a very clear idea of what all this would look like on the ground, end quote. Jesus here is very self-aware that he is the Messiah of God. And I think at this point, he's likely aware that his disciples aren't yet making that connection. And so he takes them, as Jonathan just said, well away from their normal sphere of activity to Caesarea Philippi in the far north of the land of Israel, well outside the territory of Herod Antipas, a good two days walk from the Sea of Galilee to get them to say out loud what they've caught on to or not caught on to. Jesus, hey guys, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Disciples, Hmm, well, there are a few hypotheses going around, Jesus. Some people think that you are John the Baptizer, risen from the dead. Some say that you are the long-awaited return of the powerful spokesman of God, Elijah. Still others think that maybe you are the return not of Elijah, but of Jeremiah or one of those other powerful prophets. You see, people are struggling to understand just who Jesus is. All the astonishing preaching and teaching, all the miracles performed, all the power displayed. And just like people struggle with Jesus today, the only way it seems that they know how to define him is by the categories that they're familiar with, right? So their best attempt, he must be a powerful prophet, not unlike Islam today, right? Jesus was just a powerful prophet. Or like most everyone else, 
that he was a great teacher. But Jesus wants to know not what the people are thinking, but what the disciples are thinking. Okay, fair enough. Interesting. But who do you say that I am? Not surprisingly, if you know Peter at all, he's the first to speak up. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This is absolutely huge, if you don't see that in the text. It's huge. What Peter and the others were saying was, you are the true king. You're the one Israel has been waiting for. You are God's adopted son, the one of whom the Psalms and the prophets had spoken. They knew, they would have known this was risky to say this about Jesus because they were not only saying this, but signing on, therefore, to be a part of a prophetic movement that challenged existing authorities in the land in God's name. They were signing on for a royal challenge to say that he was the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so Jesus responds, well done, Simon. The son of Jonah has seen rightly the son of God. Happy and favored are you because you understand this, because you have seen me for who I truly am. And dear brother, the only reason that you have the clarity that the crowds do not is because my Father showed it to you. Flesh and blood has not showed this to you, but my Father in heaven has opened your eyes to see me for who I truly am, the Messiah, the anointed King of the kingdom of God. And friends, in the midst of Jesus' primary aim to make connections about the prophecies of a Messiah, and that he in fact is the fulfillment of those prophecies, that he is the Messiah, Jesus is teaching us something. He's teaching us something of what it means to be truly a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is who a disciple is, someone who also sees those connections and declares him as the Messiah the son of the living God, the anointed king of the kingdom of God in this world. I, I feel like you should all be reacting very differently than you are right now, just looking at me like that. Thank you. Yay and amen. Like I, like really think, about, maybe you're not thinking about it. Think about this clearly. Jesus is the king He's the king of the kingdom of God. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's the ruler. If you are here today and you have not proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, the true king, the one Israel had been waiting for, God's adopted son, the one of whom the Psalms and the prophets had spoken. If you have not proclaimed him as the son of the living God, if you have not recognized him as the only possible salvation from your sin, as the only one who can give you freely life and lead you in your life, as the one who did this by giving himself on the cross and spending three days in a tomb and rising from the dead, as the one who will return one day to judge the living and the dead and bring about a new heavens and a new earth. If you do not believe all of that, then you, my friend, are not a disciple. But today could be that day for you. Here in this room or on that live stream, by the power
power of the living God, through the power of his spirit. Today could be the day, and you could pray right now for the Father to grant you the happy gift of seeing Jesus. Like Russ did. It was so beautiful what you shared, brother, about Jesus. Today could be that day for you. You could enter into the kingdom of God. What a happy day today could be. October 16th, your birthday. May it be so. So that's the first step for all of us towards Jesus, to see him as Messiah, Messiah. And without that, no other next steps can follow. But once that step happens, you see, Jesus has a very important next step for Peter and every other, therefore, every other disciple who would follow. Peter is first in a line. Listen to him. Matthew 16, verse 18. And now, dear Simon, that you have correctly told me who I am, let me tell you who you are. You are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and all the powers of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And let's stop right there. I'm not sure exactly what the disciples may have been thinking about Jesus' goals as Messiah, but based on the history of Jewish expectations and teaching and other things that I hear the disciples saying, when you read the four biographies of Jesus, my guess is that what Jesus is saying right now in this moment was probably a little surprising to them. Jesus declares that he isn't going to build an actual city or an actual temple, which is probably what they were expecting. He is going to build a community consisting of all of those who give allegiance to him as God's anointed king, Messiah. And this movement, this community, starts right then, right there, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus speaking to Peter. That's exciting. This is the headwaters of the stream of the church that we are a part of. There's something really interesting here too in Jesus' statement because Jesus uses the word church in verse 18 And it's interesting to me that it's only one of two times in all four biographies of Jesus that he uses that word. And I'm fascinated that he connects that word, church, to another word that he uses 49 times in Matthew alone. And that word is kingdom, which is a word and a theological concept that is critical in Jesus' teaching, ministry, and mission because it's what he proclaims over and over again. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe the good news of the kingdom of God. Repent and believe so that you may enter the kingdom of heaven through the Son of the living God, the Messiah, the King of this kingdom, over and over and over again, 49 times in Matthew alone. And so often when he would proclaim the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, those terms are synonymous He taught, this is so exciting, he taught how this kingdom is an unstoppable force in the world. Matthew 13, 23, the kingdom of heaven is like a seed sowed in a field that bears a harvest of 30 and 60 and 100 times as much as was planted in the ground in the first place. One seed that can bring a harvest of hundreds Only Jesus can do that. Matthew 13, 
31. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in a field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when grown, it's taller than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. Matthew 13, 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until all of it was leavened. This is the kingdom that Jesus has been bringing. The kingdom of God that is pushing back what? Why is there a need to be a kingdom of God that comes into this world? Because there is a kingdom of this world who has a ruler and its powers are powers of darkness. And the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of light, which is meant to push back the darkness. And over and over and over again, King Jesus, Messiah, displays the power of this kingdom. If you would read Matthew's story leading up to chapter 16, you would see this power, the power of the kingdom healing a man with a withered hand, the power of the kingdom feeding thousands, thousands with loaves and fish, the power of this kingdom being displayed in its king walking on water out to his disciples on the sea. Last month I was reading Mark's biography of Jesus and he tells two stories of King Jesus flexing the power of his kingdom so that the kingdom of God came into this broken world. If, you, if you've read the Bible or been to Sunday school when you were a child, you've likely heard these stories that I came to in Mark chapter 6. Stories of a woman healed of a blood disease that she had for 12 years. Do you remember it? While she was on her way, well, excuse me, while Jesus was on his way to deal with another issue, to heal a little girl who then died and then he raised from the dead. And what I find, what I found revealing as I read those stories connected to Matthew chapter 16 and this theme that we're seeing of the church connected to the kingdom and is the connection between a confession of who Jesus is followed by the entry of the kingdom of God into this age at those moments where Jesus is confessed as king. The, the God space, right, overlapping into the man space, that's what it means that the kingdom of God comes, overlaps into our age. Let me remind you, if you've not seeing that in the story, the woman with the disease confesses, confesses, if I touch his garments, I know I will be made well because I know who he is. And Jesus confirms what? Daughter, your faith, your confession is what made you well. Your confession brought in the power of the kingdom to heal you. The ruler of the synagogue confesses, come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus replies, do not fear, only believe, which he must have because she was healed. He confesses, I know that your power can do this. And based on the confession, the kingdom of God comes into the world and heals the girl and she rises from the dead. You see, it is a confession about who Jesus is that brought the power of the kingdom into the world. Belief in Jesus as the anointed king, the Messiah, the son of the living God, releases kingdom power that all the powers of hell, disease and sickness and withered hands and food shortages and demon possession and death itself could not and cannot stand against. Hallelujah. 
the kingdom of heaven and the realm of heaven, the rule and reign of its king, Jesus, was seen to be an unstoppable force in the age of the disciples. And it was never meant to be just Jesus that would set loose that power into this age. You see, if you keep reading in Mark 6, right after those two displays of power, you will then read this. Jesus summoned the 12, and he began to send them out in pairs, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits so that they went out and proclaimed the kingdom of God and that people should repent. What happened? They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. (laughs) Do you see? Because of their confession of Jesus as the Messiah, making them disciples of King Jesus, they are now doing what the king had done. Proclaiming the kingdom, bringing its power A disciple of Jesus is one who releases the kingdom of God into the world. Okay, are you getting goosebumps? Because I'm getting goosebumps. I hope you're getting goosebumps. Because that's, are you living this? Are we living this? We have got to be, okay, all right. We must make sure that we see something else that Jesus teaches. Namely, he makes clear in our text in Matthew 16 that Peter and the disciples along with him is the first of many that will bear this power. And he writes, To those who agree with Peter that Jesus of Nazareth really is God's Messiah, this promise is made. Are you ready? That through this allegiance to Messiah, anyone, anyone who has an allegiance to this Messiah, they will become the people through whom the living God will put the world to rights, bringing heaven and earth into their new state of justice and peace. Peter, with this declaration of faith, will be the starting point of this community, of which he is the first, not the last. He's the beginning point. And we are a part of that community. Every one of us who claims allegiance to Messiah as king, to Jesus as Messiah, to Jesus as the bringer of the kingdom, we are now the bringers of the kingdom. We can bring a taste of the new heaven and the new earth into the sphere of our influence, of those around us, the places we work, the neighborhoods we live, the houses in which we dwell. That is absolutely stunning. In the ordinary, everyday, mundane reality of your life, you can bring the kingdom of God. Now, what what did Jesus call that community? What did he call it? The church. Jesus says, Peter, you are the exemplar. You are the first. You have rightly confessed who I am as the Christ. And on you, thus confessing, I will build my 
church. You are the first stone with me as the cornerstone and no powers of hell shall stand against my church. Those who follow, those who confess, those who believe, those who gather together, I will give you all the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Y'all will open the door to all those outside of the kingdom, proclaiming and giving them the chance to enter based on their confession of me. And I will give all of you authority to bind and to loose. And I will give all of you authority to guide others for how they must live, to show them what they must do that leads to life and what they must cease doing that leads to death. Jesus is establishing the foundation of the church, making clear the power of the church and showing the community built on this and believing this, that they will prevail. They will prevail. This is so encouraging. Oh my goodness. This is so comforting. And family, I hope you are feeling it right now by the power of the Holy Spirit in this place. This is so strengthening. How easily I forget this. How easily I feel like the kingdom of darkness is prevailing in my life and in my city and in my neighborhood. And to some degrees we can say, it is but how wonderful to remember that King Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and then he instituted the church to be the expression of that authority in his absence, to be his body, his family, and his people. Friends, Jesus empowered the church then and he empowers the church now through his spirit. Acts 1 and 2. Through his spirit. Do you remember how he said to them? Do not, do not leave Jerusalem because you're not ready yet. There is something you yet need. I've given you all this teaching. I've spent all this time. But I have one final gift to give you. And it is the Holy Spirit. And we must say every day when you wake up in the morning and you throw your feet over that bed onto that cold floor, say to yourself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. You must say when you walk in these doors, I believe in the Holy Spirit and he is here and he's in me and he's in us, among us, to do something remarkable today. I don't know what that is, but I trust that he's going to do it. Because through that spirit, Jesus is bringing about in you, you are little you are a little outpost of the, of the new heavens and the new earth. Right? Isn't, this, isn't that how Paul says it elsewhere? You are ambassadors. We're, we're citizens of heaven. You just sang it. You are children of God. You're planted here at this little outpost. We come together to remember that and remind each other of that. We are the bringers of the kingdom of God. God's space operating against all earthly and dark powers. This church, Grace Church. <laughs> I was praying with George and Jim this morning like we do every Sunday morning. And Jim chuckled and said, isn't it crazy that he uses us? To which we all got to go, amen, brother. <laughs> My goodness. Because it's not just Russ. He pulls back that veil on all of our backgrounds. Good night. Jesus says that to be his disciple is to be a part of his church. It is what a true disciple of Jesus does. 
We have north of 300 people who regularly attend this local expression of the worldwide church of Jesus, the Messiah. And of those 300 plus, just a hair over 150 of you are active, what I like to call covenant members, covenant members, because we've entered into a covenant with one another. We have a common statement of faith. We have common aims to help people grow one step closer to Jesus, to do that in gentle environment of the gospel and safety and time. And I'm grateful for those of you who have made that clear commitment. But that means so many of you are not yet what we call members. You have not explicitly committed and connected yourselves to this church family, which means you may not be expressly or deeply connected to any church family, which concerns us as elders and shepherds. And I understand, listen, and we understand as elders that there are a host of reasons for why it may be that you've not expressly committed through membership to a local church. Maybe you just haven't considered it before this moment. Didn't even know there was this thing called membership. Maybe you've been hurt by people in the church. I'm sorry. Churches are filled with sinners. And sometimes we do really stupid, hurtful, hateful, wrong things. And I'm sorry. And so maybe that's happened to you. And so you're gun shy. You don't want to become a member of a church again. Look what happened last time. Or maybe you come from a different denominational affiliation and that has held you back from joining our family expressly through membership. And I'm aware of situations like that in our church family. And that's complex and difficult. Maybe it is that you needed to hear what Jesus had to say to Peter about who a disciple is a confessor of the saving Messiah. And what a disciple does becomes a part of a church because maybe, you know, maybe you've been thinking wrongly about the church. Jonathan Lehman, author of Church Membership, How the World Knows Who Represents Jesus, presses into this kind of wrong thinking that can happen about the church. He says, if you are a Christian living in a Western democracy, chances are that you need to change the way you think about your church and how you are connected to it. It may be that you underestimate the church so that you misshape it in a way that then misshapes your Christianity. Okay, listen closely now. He says, you see, the church is not a club. And sometimes we're at fault for making it look like a club. Can we be honest about that? It is not a voluntary organization, an organization where membership is optional for you. It is not a friendly group of people who share an interest in religious things and gather weekly to talk about theological stuff. The church is not a service provider where the customer has all the authority. End quote. You see, it is likely that a history of viewing the church as a voluntary organization 
just another among a list of charities that we can give our time to and serve humanity with. A history of coming to the church like we do with so many other organizations as consumers looking to have our demands satisfied. Maybe that is what has resulted in the kind of wrong thinking that can create symptoms, symptoms like the following. Listen to this. A Christian can grow to think that it's fine to attend a church indefinitely without joining, which is simply an act of commitment to that local church family. A Christian can think of getting baptized apart from joining. A Christian can take the Lord's Supper without joining. Christians don't integrate their Monday to Saturday lives with the lives of other saints with whom they are in fellowship. Christians can assume they can make a perpetual habit of being absent from the church's gathering a few Sundays a month or more. Christians make major life decisions without considering the effects of those decisions on the family of relationships in the church or without consulting the wisdom of the church's pastors and other members. Or Christians don't realize they are partly responsible for both the spiritual welfare and physical livelihood of the other members of their church family. So when one mourns, they don't mourn. And when one rejoices, they don't rejoice. And all of that can happen when you lose sight of the church being a place where there are people who are confessing Jesus as Messiah and the king of the kingdom of God and gathering together are the release point of that kingdom of God into the world. Like last week, maybe we said we domesticate Jesus. We domesticate the power of this church. Now at this point, in the sermon, I thought, there's probably an objection rising in some minds. Wait a minute. Just hold on a second, pastor, preacher, dude. That's an awful lot to pull out of one little interaction between Peter and Jesus in Caesarea Philippi that lasted like, what was that, 30 seconds that it took you to read that? I do not think that Jesus is using the word church the way that you are using the word church. You keep on using that word. I do not think you know what it means. (laughs) Now, that is a good objection. Honestly, if you're having that objection right now, I mean it. That's a good objection, and I'm grateful that you made it. Thank you very much. Because it means you're paying close attention to the text and making sure that I'm teaching from the text, which is what you should always be making sure I do as a preacher here. And in one sense, if you're making that objection, you're correct. Jesus, when he speaks of the church in this text, I think means those who confess him, making them part of a worldwide church and therefore part of his body. And I think he means that that worldwide church will be the way that the kingdom of God draws near to people who are in the kingdom of darkness. And so you may be sitting here thinking, well, listen, I confess Jesus and I believe in the worldwide church that he speaks of, but I do not see how that requires me to be part of a local expression of that worldwide church in the way that you seem to be talking about membership. Okay, fair enough. And I would be okay with you coming to that conclusion if all that we had to understand about the word church came from Jesus because he only uses it twice in all four biographies. But that's not all we have about this word. 
church because that teaching doesn't end with Jesus because there is the rest of the New Testament. Written by the apostles of King Jesus under the inspiration of the spirit of King Jesus. And while Jesus uses the word church only two times, Paul, for example, uses the word church 43 times. And Paul, under the inspiration of the spirit of King Jesus, thus complements and completes what Jesus has in mind when he established the church in that interaction with Peter. So that when we come to our Bibles, listen to me now, this is really cool. Jesus... Jesus establishes that the church is and Paul establishes what the church is. Does that make sense? Jesus establishes that the church is and Paul establishes what the church is. And that is really cool because from Paul, we learn that a church is a local defined group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's names. We learn that the church is more than merely a gathering of disciples of Jesus because we learn a church must have leadership, biblically formed and functioning, deacons and elders and pastors. We learn that a church is a place where those leaders and members along with them practice discipline on one another when necessary with mercy and grace. We learn that the church is where the word of God is rightly preached in all its authority, sufficiency, and usefulness. We learn that the church is a place where the sacraments of baptism and communion are rightly administered. We learn that a church is where a group of disciples express their commitment to affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ. Christ and his kingdom, thus holding, get this, the keys to heaven for who enters into the kingdom of God and who is turned aside, binding and loosing by being involved, binding and loosing by being involved in one another's lives and guiding each other's living That's what a church does. We bind and loose in each other. Sometimes that'll hurt. Sometimes that will require humility by you when someone steps in to bind and to loose in your life. We learn from Paul that the church is a place where a defined set of people who have expressed their common fidelity share in the mission of the discipleship of the nations. (laughs) We send people to Ecuador and to Thailand so that the word, the good news of this kingdom of God can be spread across this globe right here from little old Salida, Colorado. My dear family, we, we must read Jesus along with Paul so that when Jesus says, I will build my church, we take everything we learn from Paul about that word and we pour it into that word that Jesus uses. So that the church so defined by both Jesus and Paul, a church like that and nothing else quite like that. There are other places and organizations that declare Jesus, but the church is the primary and expressly created tool by King Jesus to release the kingdom of God into this world. There is no other force like it. It is through the church, through us, that the God space will overlap with the man space and miracles of healing will happen. Do you believe it? That demons will be cast out. 
that dead people can be made alive, having been transferred out of the kingdom of the dark one into the kingdom of the beloved son. And Jesus makes clear that you were not saved unto yourself. You were saved into a community called the church. A family and a bride that he died to create. You know, I'm going off script here, which is dangerous. I thought this morning of something that I heard. I think Jared Wilson said it. Imagine, imagine if someone started criticizing husbands out there. Imagine if someone started criticizing your wife. Oh, she seems kind of overweight. She's got really bad breath. She's not all that pleasant to look at. What would you do? How would you feel? Jesus calls the church his bride. I think we ought to be careful how quickly we are to criticize her. Because I wonder how Jesus feels about us cracking on his bride. Now, let me be very clear. The church is not above criticism. We're not perfect. We're sinners. We have places we need to improve. I'm just talking about attitude here. Motivation. Inclination. And are there churches that are teaching false doctrine? Of course. Should they be brought down? Yes. Read Paul. But let's be careful how quick we are to criticize Jesus' bride because if the church universal seen in each and every local expression of that universal reality were this important to Jesus, shouldn't it be just as important to us? So what exactly does taking this next step? This is a sermon in a series of sermons on next steps. What does taking this next step look like? Joining our family, church membership, is very straightforward. You simply meet with an elder or two. You share your testimony of your confession of Jesus as Messiah and say, you want to be a part of this family. I believe what you believe. I've read the statement of faith. I'm in agreement with your aims. I, I want to commit to you and I want to come under you and I want your care and your protection over me. It's simply a formal recognition a mutual of a mutual commitment between us and you. As elders, we need to know who our sheep are. And membership is just the tool by which we know, okay, you're saying you want to be a part of this family. We got you. It means that we are responsible for you and for you growing one step closer to Jesus. And that means that you need us because God's plan for you is the church. His grace and power flows through her to you because, worship team, would you come up? What other option than the church do you have in the estimation of Jesus to grow one step closer to Jesus? Jesus does not want you to be outside of her in the world, outside of God's people and the structures and protections that he provides. You need us. And it also means we need you. We need you. Not because we want to report greater numbers. Not because we need your money. We don't need your money. God tells you to give your money, but that's between you and God. We need you because the Bible tells us that the church is a family. And without you as a disciple of Jesus, we're missing part of our family. 
You're our long lost brother, our long lost sister that we're just so eager to see come home. The Bible teaches that the church is a body and without you, our church is not whole. We're missing an eye or an ear or a hand. We're lamed without you. We're not everything we could be as a body of Jesus without you. See, we're better together. We are better together. For together, Jesus says, the gates of Hades will not overpower us and Jesus will give us the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever we bind on earth will have been bound in heaven and whatever we loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Yes, and very amen in Jesus' name.